Hey friends, welcome to Boca, a podcast exploring the ever-blurring lines between the personal and business lives of professional photographers. This is your host, Nathan Holritz, and I'm happy that you can join me today in connecting with photographers and entrepreneurs as we discuss photography, business, and oh yeah, that sometimes messy thing that we call life. This podcast is brought to you by Photographer's Edit, custom image editing for the wedding and portrait photographer. Just visit photographersedit.com. All right, Boca Podcast listeners, we're here for yet another conversation, another episode at the Boca Podcast and with a new friend of mine, uh, somebody that I could easily get become very, very good friends with. We've had wonderful conversation already. Kiala Jarvis, thank you so much for making time for the Boca Podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I, w- I was already telling you or complimenting you really about this before we get started, but the, your energy, even your response just now is, I, I don't know, it's kind of contagious and it gets me that much more excited for our conversation. So we're just going to jump right in today. Sounds good. And we, we're going to be covering a pretty big topic later on in the episode too. So we'll get to that in a bit. But just to start off, something that is a theme here at the podcast is time, time management, making space for doing more than just taking pictures and sitting behind a computer. And so I'm curious, what is something that you do on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis that makes more time for you for life, just to have a little bit more space in your life? My current favorite one is scheduling out all my emails and my social media. And the reason why it's so helpful to me right now is probably because I'm usually dealing with a giant time difference when I'm in a very different time zone than most of my clients. So, and I, I'm only, I, I've scheduled myself. So I only do my email twice a day. And so when I'm doing emails, that's usually like one or two in the morning for my clients. And I don't have notifications go off on my phones, but I know that they do. So I don't want them like getting a notification, hopefully not waking them up that I'm sending them an email. And so I use boomerang on Gmail to just delay it. So I don't have to have it keep lingering in my mind. And then for the same reason of the time zone, um, social media, I use buffer. Now I used to use Hootsuite, but because of a podcast that you guys held about social media apps that you guys use, I switched to buffer and it's amazing. I love it because it goes over Twitter and Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook. The interface is so easy to use. And so then, you know, I schedule out all my social media so I don't have to worry about also waking up at like two or three in the morning. (laughs) I know it's helpful for like other other than that. But for me right now, like that's a really big deal is just scheduling that out getting it all taken care of. So the momentum is still going, but I'm not constantly having to worry about it. Okay. So I want to give a little bit of context to the conversation and you and I haven't even talked about this yet, but you're currently in Poland, correct? That is correct. Yes. And where, and whereabouts in Poland? And by the way, thank you for staying up late to do this podcast episode tonight. Oh, of course. I'm a giant fan. So like, uh, it's totally worth it. I'm in Warsaw right now. Uh, my husband has a work assignment out here for the next couple of years. And so we're just chilling out here. What? So what's it like? Because I've certainly never been to Poland before. It's honestly, I think it's such a like a hidden gem of Europe. It is so beautiful out here. There's so much history out here. A lot of effects of World War II are out here, specifically mm. in the area where we live. Um, I guess most of Warsaw there's a lot of effect for World War II for any of you history buffs. But 
it is just, it's a really big country. There's tons of great like culture and history. The people are so lovely here. Honestly, like I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I've loved it. That's wow. So what would you say would be the biggest cultural difference? Because it's interesting to think about the the rich cultural history and unfortunately sad in some ways as well. But what would you say would be the biggest cultural difference from because you're you're also based or you live at least part time or have lived in Utah. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Okay. so what would you say is like the immediate noticeable difference between the two cultures? One of the obvious ones is obviously the language, uh, and in Pol- like everyone here speaks Polish, and only about fifty percent of people speak English. Okay, that I think was the biggest shock for me because I had traveled um, in other areas of Western Europe before, and mostly everyone spoke English. It wasn't a problem, but because of Poland's history, uh, with they're about forty or older, they speak Russian and Polish. Okay. Uh, they're younger than 40, then they usually speak English and Polish. But it's a very new thing because they, you know, were under communist, like Russia until like 89. And so that they're, they're just embracing more of, you know, like the Western world. And, but the language part is a big one. So I definitely use Google Translate a lot. <laughs> wow, I can imagine. And and I mean, I learned to speak Japanese growing up. I spent about 10 years in Japan. But have yeah. you learned to speak the language very much? Is that something you're kind of proactively doing? I'm working on it. I'm not catching on as fast as I would like. But okay. it is slowly starting to click. It is easier to be here. But it just it's the whole when people are talking to you, like I can read it and kind of translate what I know pretty easily, but it's when someone speaks to you, there's like this tunnel thing and I like just panic. And then I'm like, <laughs> I know I know some of what you just said, yeah. but like I just panic and I just, I didn't hear any of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I think it's, I think it's wonderfully, I guess in some ways exhilarating. Uh, I know for me personally to be able to even just have a very short conversation with somebody that speaks a different language that is, I think really what it comes back to in some ways is this opportunity to connect with yet another person, but in a different way. And, you know, the opportunity that I've had here in the States even to be able to have a conversation in Japanese with somebody who's visiting, the last thing that they expect is this dude in a black t-shirt with spiky (laughs) hair to come at them, not only in their own language, but to speak in their accent. And in some cases, and, and it may be a kind of a cultural thing, in some cases, they're, they're actually put off by it, and they, they want to engage in English. But in other cases, right. you see this beautiful surprise in their eyes, and kind of, you know, they're the startle, and then they begin kind of nervously laughing, and then they'll engage in Japanese, and then it's almost a sense of relief and then excitement. And uh, mm-hmm. ultimately, you have this opportunity to connect with somebody that you have never connected with before, may never connect with again, but you've been able mm-hmm. to do it in kind of a unique way, being able to speak their language, and it's a pretty cool thing. So I hope that you get to have those kinds of opportunities as well. Oh, I have had a few. I, fi- I feel like I'm in the opposite where when I hear someone speaking in English, then I'm like, I'm like, Oh my gosh. And then it's just a beautiful thing because then all of a sudden, like I'm instantly friends with them and they're instantly friends with me. And it's been a really beautiful thing to experience so often that 
like I wouldn't normally get in America. Yeah, well, I think there's something to be said about, you know, I mean, we we can experience this in a different way or, or in a different dynamic here in the States, but the fact that someone would go outside of their comfort zone and speak a language that isn't naturally theirs for the sake of connecting with you says something, you know, and I'm, yeah. I, I mean, this could be a whole podcast or probably 50 podcast episodes in and of itself. And we talk <laughs> about human connection. And it's something that fascinates me, but I hope that you continue to have those opportunities and kudos to you for, for continuing to travel too. I mean, whether it, it happens because of your husband's work or, or otherwise, I know that you've had the opportunity to visit a variety of places and that might be something that you enjoy doing in your free time. But I'm actually noticing here something else that's on your website is that you enjoy practicing boxing and, and Muay Thai. Is that right? Yes. That's like a new, like three years ago, I started that and it's, I'm obsessed with it. So what, what got you into it and what do you enjoy about it? I've always been like intrigued by it, but very intimidated. And then I finally was just like, I drove by the boxing gym that I drove by many times and decided that it's like tomorrow morning, I'm going to go in. And I was hooked. Like, that's actually kind of a pun for boxing. And then I got so it was like, it was like that when people say like, find something like when, when, you know, when they're like, oh, I want to get into shape, I want to work out. It's like, oh, find something that you like to do and then doesn't, then you find joy in it. Boxing and Muay Thai is that for me. And so I became addicted to it. So like getting up and doing a class at six or five in the morning didn't, wasn't much effort for me Mm. because I loved doing it so much. And I got so involved that I started teaching uh, amateur classes there. Really? And then was going to switch to train to fight because one of the other teachers needed a sparring partner okay and then um i got pregnant <laughs> so then i was like okay i have to put this on hold for a little bit i would say um, so yeah and then we moved to poland and then so i'm like okay so i haven't really gone back into it because i am a bit intimidated with the language barrier but i do miss it all the time there is so i've had the opportunity over the last few years two or three years anyway to to watch the ufc uh, mixed martial arts for those of you who aren't familiar with it kind of combines jujitsu and boxing and, and kick well kickboxing really mm-hmm. and a number of in karate and and uh, judo and so forth a number of martial arts and yeah while some may argue that it is violent and, and I, I would have to agree with them there is something that is so raw about it um, that is it's hard not to watch but then simultaneously at the end. And then, of course, the, the skill set. Joe Rogan is a favorite podcaster of mine. And one of the things he talks about it uh, refers to jujitsu as physical chess. And mm-hmm. um, I find that really interesting, the skill set. You know, some might think that it's just this kind of mindless beating each other up. And the reality is the skill set involved is just mind-blowing. But then at the very end, so many times after they've just beat each other up to, to a bloody mess in some cases, they get up and give each other a hug and show a level of sportsmanship that you wouldn't, I mean, it wouldn't ever cross your mind. It's not that, expected. No, yeah. it's the craziest thing to see. Yeah. I, it, and I also argue like when people are like, well, I'm like when they're really hesitant because the, it has the, that like facade of being like very aggressive and, you know, violent, but in all honesty, like unless you're at that level, you're usually just hitting a bag or mitts and right. it's therapy and a workout all in one. And so I'm like, it's just, it's cheaper to do boxing or Muay Thai instead of like, 
you know, going to the gym and going to therapy. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I hate to bore the book of podcast listeners with all my motorcycle riding stories, but you and I were chatting briefly about riding motorcycles before we started the podcast, but there is something, whether it's riding motorcycles or getting into boxing, or maybe it's getting into CrossFit or whatever it might be. There's something to be said for having an outlet that also enables us to be able to develop a skill set outside of day-to-day, what can be kind of monotonous day-to-day life, and even the running of our business, which can at times be a bit just busy and monotonous. It's nice to challenge ourselves outside of that. And so again, kudos to you for doing that. Tell us something else, though, just totally random about yourself, maybe that most people wouldn't know. I love college football. And most people don't assume that because I'm a very small, petite girl, but I love watching college football. And since moving to Poland, like it kind of aches in the fall because I it's so hard to stream it here. Yeah. Also because of the time zone difference and also because of the access, there's a bit of a limitation there. But fall's my favorite season for football season, but it's really people think it's fun. My husband does not like sports like at all. <laughs> yeah. And so you know, like in the fall, you know, it's usually a busy time for photographers, especially portrait photographers. And then on the weekends, I'm just watching football all the time. He's like, can I hang out with my wife? So <laughs> it's been kind of helpful to be here because then I've, I've been like almost forced to kind of withdraw. But I, I do get the highlights the next day, which is kind of fun. Okay. Yeah, I could see that. I watch MotoGP, so back to motorcycles, but motorcycle racing, which is kind of like the F1 car racing, but it's the motorcycle mm-hmm. version. And a yeah. lot of these races, actually right now, they've been happening over in Asia and thereabouts. And so the, because of the time difference, you know, the races are being <laughs> held at like 1 a.m. And yeah. I'm, I'm trying to, I, I get up the next morning and I'm trying to pull the race up without seeing the result so that I can still enjoy the race <laughs> itself. Um, so yeah. I can very much relate to your, uh, your, your struggle there, <laughs> shall we yeah, say. Yeah, for sure. So I want to switch gears though here, and I'm, I'm really curious, um, you're very well spoken. Is there something that has been particularly inspiring on an educational level, whether it's a book or audiobook or podcast, something that you have read or listened to in the last few years that's really challenged you? I, there are so many. Like That's a really good question. My, my go-to favorite book right now that I'm listening to for the fourth time is Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. Wow, okay. That book, I highly recommend it to everybody, but it's really helpful for creative entrepreneurs because she really breaks down the creative process in so many different like realms that each time I listen or read that book, I get something else from it. Hmm. It's kind of like your untethered soul to you. It's yes. like it just I keep getting these nuggets over and over again. And it always fuels me to like, you know, cause sometimes when, when we do, you know, we're doing photography as a business, like it's <laughs> like, sometimes you feel, you know, pulled you know, as if you're doing, if you're doing more of the business and you're betraying the art. And if you're doing more of the art, then you're betraying the business side. And I, that book really helps me kind of center into kind of like a marriage between the two. And obviously because of the area I live in, as far as fiction goes, I love like I'm going through a World War II fiction stage. And so I just finished Nightingale by Kristen Hannan, which is a really great book based off of like two sisters in World War II in France. And that's just like that one has been like just super exciting to read. But then, of course, I'm I, I feel like I'll be reading rereading Big Magic for a while, like 
it's a really good read for me. Okay, so I have to ask you first, do you read your fiction and nonfiction at certain times of the day? Do you have preference there? I do my nonfiction, usually my self-help books in the morning, and then at night I read the fiction books. Okay, yeah, that, I, I tend to go the same route, actually, and um, as of late I've been reading, and I, honestly, I haven't read a whole lot of fiction in my adult life, but I've begun to slowly, slowly get back into it as of late just to give myself a mental break. And mm-hmm. one of the ways that I fall asleep and relax most easy is to get my Kindle paper white, which of course doesn't have that LCD screen. So it's not screwing my sleep habits up and um, just pop that on and read a, a fiction book at night. I'm going through a, a series called the Themis or Themis series right now, which is kind of random. Um, but it's it's quite good, um, and we'll have to link in the show notes to the to the book that you mentioned earlier, the historical fiction. But I'll just read very briefly the uh, the description actually on Amazon for this Elizabeth Gilbert book. It says readers of all ages and walks of life had drawn inspiration and empowerment from Elizabeth Gilbert's books for the years. Now this beloved author digs deep into her own generative process to share her wisdom and unique perspective about creativity. Uh, with profound empathy and radiant generosity, she offers potent insights into the mysterious nature of inspiration. And it goes on a little bit, but I'm, I'm really curious, what's been the biggest takeaway from that, uh, from that book for you? And I know that you continue to get more and more, but what's been the most inspirational element of it? The one that I, that's, stands out to me over and over again with each read is, and I'm going to censor it, is the poop sandwich is what she called it. <laughs> okay. That like every like every uh, like thing in life kind of it's kind of like Mark Manson or I think Mark Monson Mark Manson's book of like subtle art of not giving an f it's like everything has its opposite hmm. the crap that you have to to put up with in order to do the things that you want to do or you know like if you want to be super fit like the poop sandwich is that you have to diet and you can't eat sugar and you have to get up early to work out and she puts that in perspective as like an artist where she had a friend that was writing and had some decent success but was complaining because he wasn't super successful and he wanted to quit because what was the point because he's not getting recognized or noticed and that for him was his like poop sandwich and she Elizabeth is like well are you going to finish that because all all she cares about is she just wants to keep writing and that's what brings her joy if it brings her success great yeah but like the rejection doesn't like she'll eat that sandwich because it doesn't it gets her to do writing as a job daily to fill her cup in that way. So that perspective, you know, I and I use it a lot when I talk about a lot of aspects in life, you know, when you do when you specialize in weddings, like for me the poop sandwich of specializing in weddings is the super long wedding days and being super energetic for the whole day like by hour six, I want to take a nap and just be done. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Or like with new for with newborn photography, for me, it's like the the hot the hot hot room and crouching over, and then my body aches in that way. And I mean, like every single thing has that. And so, you know, picking what you want and then recognizing like there is this like the crap that you have to put up with to be doing the things that you want to do. And if you're okay with that, then that that sandwich is a good fit for you, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And and it's a wonderful reminder, kind of a dose of reality 
uh, in our first world, world culture that, hey, you know what, we got to have to put a little bit of effort and energy and work into things and it may not happen for us right away. But there is something to be said for consistency and continuing to follow through that will lead to results. And you got to eat that poop sandwich, as you say, along the way <laughs> in order to get there and, and just be okay with that. Um, and I think we have a tendency in our culture these days because we're so comfortable to then make a really big deal about stuff that really in the scheme of things in the big picture isn't that big of a deal. And so it's always yeah. nice to have those kinds of reminders, that perspective. That's really great. We'll link to that book in the show notes as well. And I appreciate you sharing that with us. Let's go the direction yeah. of photography too. I mean, you've alluded to this a little bit. How long have you been in business as a photographer? And talk to us a little bit about how you got started. I've been doing photography. I'll be entering into my eighth year. And what's so funny is my story is very similar to someone you just had on recently, Jesse Onesto. I hope I'm saying your name right. That like I thought my story was so unique and then I hear hers and it's very similar. So I also got into photography in the fine art realm of college. I was anticipating to go into graphic design when I was a junior in high school. I was like, I like this art thing. How can I do this for a job? And not be like super poor. <laughs> and so I just decided, hey, I'll do graphic design. And I applied to the program and I totally did not get in. <laughs> Which at the time, it was like they really didn't want me. So like 47 people applied and they took 40. So like, wow, I was one of the seven. And at the time it was, it was like the most devastating thing to ever happen to me. <laughs> and which now in perspective was one of the greatest blessings because I decided like I was just going to give the school thing like one more semester. And I just so happened that next semester to take my first dark room class. And that first assignment was pinhole photography, which uh, Jesse talked about in her podcast. But, and like, I, here's like, Here's the here's the real truth. I really sucked that first semester. <laughs> I was so far behind because most of the people there had already taken a class or two in high school. I had never taken a film photography class, let alone just like a photography class. I had like a, a nice point and shoot digital. And by nice, it, it was like we got it off of like a classified thing. And I had no clue what I was doing there. You know, I would have my photo paper right next to the enlarger, which is like a giant light and it's light sensitive paper. And this girl was so sweet next to me and would have to like hide the paper underneath. And I was like, why in the world does she keep doing it? Like, I really, like, I learned so many things the hard way that, I mean, at that first year, but I loved it so much that it, I didn't care. I just, it was a lot of drive to keep improving because I was the bottom of the pack and there were so many really good photographers. It really pushed me. Mm. And and then, oh, and then after, you know, on my final senior year, I took an internship at a portrait photography, like a family portrait studio. And they offered me a job. And that kind of took me away from the fine art realm into portrait photography. You know, there's something interesting. You talked about Jess Onesto's story as well. And, and if you all have not heard that episode, go back to episode 186. And Jess talks about developing a distinct photography brand. And check that out and the show notes that go along with that. If you just go to Boca Podcast, B-O-K-E-H podcast.com. But there's something really fascinating about backstories. Uh, you know, we could probably spend with each of these episodes 
a, a good full hour, if not more, easily talking about everyone's backstories. I don't know if, if you ever do this. Something that I love doing at, at uh, airports is just to walk down the hallways of airports and you look around and you think about all the stories represented by the individuals walking down the hallway. And the cool mm-hmm. thing about those stories is that they ultimately make up who we are. And it makes for a good conversation, hopefully over a drink too, but um, it makes up who we are in the end. And that, of course, can translate even to not only the, the photographic work that we do, uh, but ultimately, of course, the the business that we run as well. And so it's I, I appreciate you sharing a little bit of that backstory. I, I have to say, I never had the opportunity to do the darkroom thing. Um, I did start in film. Uh, I never did study, officially study photography. I did start in film, and I'm glad that I had that experience. But I would love at some point in time to get in a dark room and learn that process. I think it would be absolutely beautiful. It is. I miss it so much. Like it, I still have a dream that when I like my dream house will have a dark room, and I haven't done it since then. And it's I think not like six years ago. Possibly <laughs> it's been a long time. But there's something about this sound. This will sound so weird, but like working with like the chemicals and getting like all like into it and being it's so it was so therapeutic i miss it a lot i think yeah i think maybe there is something that is tangible about that that is so distinctly different from most of our existence again in 2018 culture where we have wonderful technology that kind of does all the work for us so actually Mm -hmm. getting to do something that is tangible that takes a little bit of getting dirty uh, is can actually be really, really enjoyable. So I, I can totally understand what you're talking about there. We're, we're fast forwarding here quite a bit. You talked about being in photography for eight years. Portrait work is your your specialty, more specifically family and uh, and then seniors. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. So is that your? Would you say that's your business's brand position? I mean, there are a lot of family and senior photographers out there. How do you actually distinguish yourself from other portrait photographers, other senior photographers? Uh, in your very vast market? Yeah, that's a really good question. Well, as far as like, if I were to put what I'm trying to encapsulate as far as my brand in a sentence, uh, I like to say I'm an international portrait photographer that creates unique artistic expressions of um, the individual or family's soul. Uh, Because I find like, I'm, I'm wanting to tell a story about each unique person Hmm. and I like I hope that I get that across I know for as far as the international thing now I've really embraced that transition and putting that on my website trying to communicate that on social media but as far as like to I guess make myself different like it's the experience I feel like a lot of photographers talk about that but it's because it's true like creating a unique experience what even though when we hear it so often, it doesn't sound quite rare. It is sometimes rare when we have such a saturated market, creating something that makes an, these like our like our subjects, our clients feel special and seen and and heard. Sometimes is a really powerful thing that I feel as a photographer, like we have that power to really give that to our clients. I I, I would have to agree here and. You know, there, there. You're right. There are a lot of photographers who talk about providing a positive experience. A lot of photographers that talk about connecting on a deeper level when it comes to the relationship with their clients. And and yet, as you pointed out, 
the reality is that I think most photographers are only going so far with that. The experience isn't necessarily unique. And when it comes to being seen and heard, I'm glad that you use those words. I think there's some real significance to that. I've found this just in basic conversation with human beings, whether in the, the photography industry or otherwise, that if you're willing to stop, just slow down, I should say, and ask legitimate, no, not legitimate, but deep questions that go beyond the surface level, you know, kind of BS that, that they're used to hearing from people mm -hmm. who are just trying to get through a conversation like it's a formality and move on to the next thing. That if you slow down and really take the time to, to ask about who they are and what life means to them and why they're having a difficult time or what are the things that they're currently learning in life and then go even deeper than that. It's, it's amazing how it, it actually throws a lot of people off, at least initially, because they're not mm -hmm. used to being engaged that way. And I think we can take that type of engagement, which comes from a genuine place in our heart, and translate that to what we're doing as photographers and the response that we can potentially get uh, with those subjects behind the camera or in front of the camera, rather, is is really incredible. And, and I have to say, I mean, major props to you. I'm, I'm scanning through your Instagram account right now as we speak. Your work is very, very beautiful. First of all, your use of light uh, is is stunning. Beautiful, beautiful Thank work you. and the way that you're using light. But I, I do love the expressions that are coming from these subjects. It's not cookie cutter. It's not all the same thing. You do actually get to see some personality in these subjects. And uh, so I, it, it looks as though your mission is very, very obvious, uh, obviously uh well, I, I should say more effectively that you're you're accomplishing your goal and trying to share yes. who that personality is behind those eyes. And again, I love the fact that there's variety. I was speaking to this with another one of our guests. You know, it's it's something that you don't see very often uh, these days. It feels like anyway that you don't see variety in an Instagram feed. An Instagram feed, there it's been promoted. This idea has been pro promoted for so long that. There should be a consistent look, whether it's, you know, the light and airy or dark and moody and everything has to kind of fit that feel and that look. Mm -hmm. And and yet within that, then you you kind of lose variety. And uh, yeah. I there is some consistency to the color uh, and, and the brightness in your images. But there's a wonderful, wonderful variety of the way that you're using light and also the expression and the posing. And uh, so for those of you listening in, make sure that you do go check out Kiala's work. First of all, at her website, it's Kiala Jarvis, K-E-A-L-A-J-A-R-V-I-S, kialajarvis.com, and then Kiala J Photo on Instagram. And of course, we'll link to those in the show notes at bocapodcast.com. But yeah, very beautiful work, Kiala. Thank you, Nathan. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm curious, how do you communicate that to a potential client? And you mentioned earlier that you're working with clients who aren't necessarily in your time zone too. So a lot of this communication is probably virtual. How do they yeah. know that this is the experience that they, that you're providing for them? Well, I'm finding most of my clients come from word of mouth. And so about 70% of them are coming already and have heard about the experience, have seen the products that the, you know, their friends have gotten and they, they, they're, they want that either for themselves if the seniors inquiring with me or for their daughter, um, if the mom's inquiring with me. And then my intro guide. So I'm hoping that like, you know, in social media and 
in my website. It's kind of setting the expectations that I want my clients to see. And then my intro guide, if they read all of it, because I'm working with a generation that doesn't read through everything. It's true. But if they read through it all, it really sets out like this is what to expect with me. You know, hair and makeup for seniors is in my packaging and, you know, quality products. And and then I have a bunch of my raves on there. So it's just really, I'm hoping by the time they get to like my pricing and the info there that they're all like in into the whole, like, this is the, you know, the experience, this is the vibe that I'm going to be getting. This is what I'm going to be part of if I have her be my photographer. Now, when you're talking about the amount of content that you put on your website that your potential client may or may not read through. Are you talking about on your about page or are you talking about a different section of the site? Um, I mean, with the generation I'm working with, it probably is all of it, (laughs) but, um, I'm more specifically talking about my intro guide. I try to keep my website where it's like just bullet points or just three or four sentences, uh, knowing that they're probably looking for like the starting price point range or the countries that I'm going to be visiting even those like four sentences that I have to, you know, talk about like family sessions, senior sessions, or my travel sessions, you know, I try and keep them simple. But again, people are very visual and you only have their attention for about three seconds. So it's just, you know, putting summaries like kind of everywhere. (laughs) So on the website, on the intro guide in like the email, if they just read the email and don't see the intro guide, just trying to put all of those little nuggets everywhere. So they should see at least what I expect them to understand what an experience with me would be like. Well, I have to give you props again for the way I'm on your about page right now. And then I was also on the details page, the way that you do communicate information is, as you say, in bullet points, certainly beautifully. So, I mean, it's laid out very beautifully on the page, but you do go to some photographers' websites and it's so wordy. And I just have to be very frank. I I think that most, as you alluded to, Kiala, most don't care to spend that much time reading and certainly not about whatever awards you won or otherwise. They want to know, A, is your work compelling? And B, are you a, a cool person that they're going to want to be photographed by? And knowing right. that you're a cool person isn't going to come from reading five paragraphs of information about your backstory it, in probably most cases. I know there's always the exception, but mm-hmm. at least the newer generation that you're referring to wants to get in and out quick. And, and so you've yeah. done a wonderful job of formatting your website in that very way. This intro guide that you're talking about, is that something that's linked from your website? So I give that to my clients when they inquire. So they'll fill out my form and then I send them, you know, basics like I photograph like Mondays through Thursdays or and that and it's changing now because I'm specifically just doing international in 2019. Yeah. But uh, and then it's like in like my pricing and stuff is attached and I have an attachment. I have it on my Google drive and I attach it there and then I summarize my next availability, what each of my collections include so that they understand, which I know we'll probably get looked into a little bit later that like all my collections have like albums and prints and, and all of that stuff. Well, and speaking of the locations, various locations that you're going to be photographing in, you actually have on your website. So Poland in August and October, Utah in September, Germany in November, Austria in December. It's a rough life, huh? Oh yeah. So hard. (laughs) (laughs) What an incredible opportunity. And I can only imagine that the scenery that you get to photograph in just has to be absolutely not just inspiring, but just 
mind-blowing in and of itself just for you to stand there, much less to get the photograph in. And I, I still remember I had I took a trip to Banff, Canada, outside of Calgary. It's been, why has it been a year and a half or so ago? And um, I, the simple size and scale of these mountains, these snow-capped mountains around, uh, around me were just beyond compelling. I'd never seen anything like it before. And oh it's gosh. so easy it's to just stand. Oh, and you've got to go for sure. And any of you listening, you haven't. It's just amazing. Even if you don't snowboard or ski, I certainly didn't when I went. Um, and it was just beyond worth the trip uh, and the time that I was there. But I, to be in a location like that, that is so compelling and then get to get to photograph in it on, on top of it, it has to be incredible. And these types of locations that you're getting to photograph in, I'm just a, just a little bit jealous. Uh, I, I hope that you get to take wonderful advantage of that. And speaking of photography and taking advantage of these scenes, is there a particular piece of camera gear that enables you to do that, that you're just really stoked on these days? I'm really like, I'm really simple when it comes to my camera gear. I've got my Canon 5D Mark III and my Sigma Art 50 and my reflector. And like, that's primarily what I've been using for the past three years. I love it. I have like a, I mean, like I have some speed lights and I use them about once a year when I want to, usually when I want to experiment and play with like color gels or like I just did some work for like Adam drip for a dress shop at like a music vendor location that has no windows whatsoever. But I, I like to keep it, keep it simple. And I was listening to Bobby's podcast and now I'm like wanting to go with like those, the, either the Sony for that Zeiss lens or like a Fuji, like those small mirrorless ones, just because yeah. I, that the Canon with the 50 is just so heavy and I like packing light. I, again, I like to keep it really simple with my gear. I'm definitely not a gearhead. I've been using that equipment for so long. Like I know all the sweet spots for it. So yeah, I like, I'm one of those people I keep it simple. I'll use it till it doesn't work and then I'll replace it. <laughs> well, and these days, yeah, I, I'm very much a simplicity freak myself. And so the idea of being able to put a complete set of gear, both your primary camera, your backup camera, your lenses, maybe a flash or two, a laptop, all in just this backpack or a small bag is awesome. And um, mm-hmm. the, the Fuji system, I was particularly compelled by the, the form factor. And it's, you know, you simultaneously have this camera that looks like an old street camera, something that you would just yeah. go on vacation with and, and grab some snapshot, snapshots with. And yet the, the technology behind it's incredible. So, um, but I, I, love, I love the simplicity of just a 50 millimeter lens and you can do amazing things with it. But again, I have to compliment you because you mentioned not using the speed lights a lot. A lot of times that can be an excuse for, I shouldn't say a lot of times, but sometimes can it be, can, it can be an excuse for just being a bit lazy and not going or taking or making the extra effort to understand how to utilize light and, you know, quote, natural light photography can be pretty mm-hmm. sloppy at times. And yet you've utilized it so well. And yet you've also mixed in um, off camera light. I mean, I'm noticing this as I'm again, scrolling through your Instagram account here as we're speaking. I love the variety of it and I like that you mix it up. I think that's really, really great. We've, I want to kind of transition to our, our primary focus for today. And, and I was chatting with you before we started recording about how this is just such a massive, massive topic for us to, you know, to cover in very much detail in about 20 minutes. But uh, we're going to be talking about IPS. And this is not a topic that we've covered a whole lot here on the podcast, but it certainly 
necessitates our time because there is a lot of money. And, and I don't say this, I have to be honest, from personal experience, but from the conversations that I've had with photographers, there's a lot of money apparently being left on the table, not making the effort to actually sell in house, in studio or in your office or otherwise. Now, I, I went a different direction with my business model, which was to charge more upfront. And uh, at the time, I was working with a company that no longer exists called Pictage. And we would photograph a wedding. We'd upload the images to the Pictage gallery. And Pictage would actually sell for us. So we'd charge a premium upfront. And then the print sales after the fact, the work being done by Pictage, were basically extra cash. And that was the model that that we went with. And, and we did it for a, a specific reason, largely the time involved. Um, but you might even be able to kind of shed some light of the actual time involved in, in IPS today. But I, I know that we left a lot of money on the table going that route. A lot of photographers are going that route or even just a simple shoot and burn uh, route. And so mm-hmm. I'm really curious to get your your take and your perspective on all of this today. Let's just start with your background in IPS. How, what was your initial exposure to it and how long have you been doing it? So I've been doing IPS for about three years I, and I have to jump in, Kiala, here. I'm so sorry. IPS, for those who don't know, in-person sales uh, is what right. that actually stands for. So I had to give that context just in case because it may be a brand new concept, but please continue. Yeah, good call. Good call. Um, I switched when I decided I wasn't going to be doing wedding photography anymore. I was doing weddings with seniors on the side, and I really wanted to commit and do senior photography. And at the time, there wasn't anyone who specialized in it in my area of Utah. And it's something that every time I had one of those, they fueled me, they brought me so much joy. But the reason why a lot of people hadn't specialized in them is there, they were like, there's no way to make money off of it. And I just, I was like, that cannot be true. Like there's gotta be a way to do this. And I had heard about IPS in Facebook groups. And so when I decided I was going to go the senior route that I was going to fully commit and embrace IPS in my business. And um, I pretty much made the switch overnight. I had like one more wedding left of the year and decided, okay, like I'm going to just start taking all my weddings off my site and putting up seniors. And then I decided like I I wanted to do it quickly because I didn't want too much downtime. So I hired a a coach that helped me just immersed me in all things IPS, you know, what it is, the mindset, changing the mindset, how to sell, how to set expectations, all of that, just because I didn't want to take the, like, I didn't want to have that be one of the tough lessons I learned, like in the process of transition. I wanted it to be pretty smooth. So I highly recommend if anybody, like I, I highly recommend business coaching. <laughs> I think they're so helpful on making those jumps or those changes to help guide you in ways to see those hurdles. And for me, that one was IPS. Now, you make an interesting note here, which is the significance of a business coach. And I don't want to get um, kind of too far off track here, but I am curious how, is there are many people out there professing themselves as business coaches and I would venture that they don't have near as much value to add as, as others. How do you mm-hmm. find a good business coach? A lot of research and doing like an intro call, a good business coach will usually want to chat with you on the phone and just to kind of see if you guys are a good fit. Um, 
write down what you're looking for in a coach, what motivates you, what doesn't motivate you, what things you want to learn Then research, you know, the best that you can get referrals from other people who've had business coaches just to start figuring out who would be the best fit for you. And usually one that in a phone call, you can usually tell by the end of the phone call, if, if you, if you guys will be good working together. Is there a way to effectively verify their experience as well? Because, you know, you people that'll say they've uh, make the resume look better than maybe it actually is. And you know, right. it's hard to trust somebody's advice if they don't actually have the experience or don't have very much experience or didn't actually have the success that they say they did. Is there any way to verify that? Well, hopefully they have reviews on their website or you can ask further, like, do you have any examples of people you've worked with and try and contact them to get their feedback. I've had people contact me about some of my business coaches or some of the workshops I've attended in the past for that very reason to just make sure that they're going to get their money's worth, that they're going, that this time that they're investing into someone to help them with their business isn't going to be wasted. Yeah, no, no, that's good. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate your, your thoughts and your feedback on that. I just wanted to make sure that yeah. we touched on that because I think it's important um, let's get back, though, to your background with IPS. So you got this business coaching and you gained some additional perspective, but take us from there. Where I started. So the, my biggest success obviously came financially. I was doing sessions for 350 and then I'm now at an average about, of about 2200 and that's rising at the moment. Wow. And for seniors, yeah, that's a, that's a really big deal for seniors and specifically in the area that I've been concentrating in, that's a really... I've been very, very blessed in that way. Um, but I found also kind of what you were saying that there was money left on the table. There was more to be desired that I found a lot of success in that I was fulfilling a need for my clients that they didn't even realize that they needed. Sometimes I feel that they want comfort to have the digitals to use whenever they want. But then I, when I follow up with them, they haven't done anything with them. And if they have, they're not happy with how they turned out. And secretly, I like there's a subtle thing in the back of the mind that it reflects on your work. Even though that you have no control of the printer that they use, it does reflect on you slightly just to them. Even if they don't express it, there is that little hint there. But when I would deliver the products and, you know, I would like when I was living there, I would help hang them up or you know, this is when I didn't have like a studio. So I was like driving to all their houses for yeah. all the order sessions and putting them up, you know, that it was, I was finishing a loop for them that they, they were just like, Oh, and they just get to enjoy it from that point on. And that was another, like the financial one's a pretty big, obvious one and why a lot of people switch to IPS, but it also helped with my, like, my experience that I want to be giving to my clients. But it's one that until they get the products, they usually don't, understand that like status like the fulfillment until they get them. that makes sense and, and you know I'm, I'm also again i'm scrolling through your instagram account as you're talking here and I'm, I'm thinking about these prints in someone's home and um mm-hmm. I, these are all prints i mean if if i had pictures of my kids or my significant other my family that looked like this these are definitely images that i would want ideally large prints of in my home or in an album or ideally both that I can share with friends and family that come over. They actually feel relevant. You know, I think about wedding photography, maybe you have a perspective on this as significant a day as the wedding is. I'm not sure 
and this is really a loaded topic and probably a conversation even for a whole different episode, but I wonder how relevant print sales or if print sales are as relevant to weddings, how mm-hmm. much, how many of our clients are going to actually want you know, massive prints of them on their wedding day throughout their house uh, as they are portrait sessions. Do you have experience in that realm and, and what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think with weddings, the big I think the big seller are albums for sure okay. because there are so many images. And te- for me, a wedding is like a story of one of the most special days of their lives. Mm. So having that album to tell the story, I think is the biggest sell. Like if I were doing IPS for weddings, albums would be my biggest sale, like sell. Yeah. Um, and honestly, probably just one, one good picture for, for weddings, you know, like a good one of the, like, you know, like that makes them feel of the love and everything. But after that, you're, you're right. You know, you might get some smaller prints, uh, from family members, you know, when, when you do the family formals, because let's be honest, those are for the family. They're not really for the bride and groom, but they'll want some of those, or maybe the parents want their own parent album, but for me, like if I were to do weddings, because I didn't do IPS with weddings, I would concentrate more on albums. That makes uh, sense. Than like a than like a lot of prints. That no, that totally makes sense. Okay, so with the, I mean, you pointed out the financial benefit of IPS, and that's pretty obvious. I mean, three fifty to twenty two hundred dollars, and I mean, if you don't mind me asking, roughly how many sessions are you going to shoot in a year? I've been able to do about 30 a year. Wow. And even now with me, like I've only, I've gone back to Utah twice now. I've, I've passed 30. Okay. So those trips are super concentrated and very, very busy, but I've been able to, and that's only because of IPS. There's no other way I could financially, you know, cause my overhead is much larger now because I'm traveling and especially with like, I bring my husband and I bring my, my kid with me. And so, yeah, I, I, there's no other way I could do it without IPS to, you know, <laughs> to cover all of those expenses. Oh, I, I totally get that. But how much, so when we're thinking as photographers, as, but more importantly, in, in some con or in this context, anyways, business owners, when we're looking at the amount that, that we're charging and then considering the time involved, of course, that translates to, to what we are and then, and then any cost associated with that shoot and with that client. We're looking at how much we're making an hour. I mean, twenty two hundred dollars up front sounds incredible, but how many hours are you putting into a client, both pre and then during the shoot and then post shoot as well, roughly? I'm doing about seven hours okay. total when I count like the shoot, meeting them for the order session, the pre consult that I do with them, and then all the emails and the editing. It usually like seven, six to seven hours is about what I do for each client. Then obviously there's there are other costs of running a business involved in in the number, but yeah. just very quick math, three hundred bucks an hour is not a bad deal as a portrait photographer. Actually, for anyone, <laughs> for that matter, right? That's yeah, a pretty, no, I've definitely been very blessed in that in that realm. That's really really awesome. Okay, so in addition to as as we were just talking about the the financial benefit of IPS. Um, and you alluded to this a little bit already, but do, would you mind commenting on the significance, uh, a little bit more on the significance of the print versus the digital file? I mean, certainly it translates to referrals. When when somebody walks into one of your client's homes and they see the prints on the wall and they ask who did that, and now you have a potential mm-hmm. client, um, there's benefit there as well. 
there is something, I mean, we've been talking about this a little bit more as of late on Boca, the significance of not just simply leaving a digital file on a phone or on a computer, if, if you're just giving your clients digital files, um, that the reality is that most of that work probably won't really ever be seen unless it's printed in some format. Do you have any other thoughts to add to that? Yeah, I think I think clients, or I feel that as photographers, we've trained you know potential clients to anticipate getting digital images. Um, I think again, it's a false sense of security because what normally they do, they they get the images and they're so excited to see them. And then they share them on Facebook. And then what I find is that then the photos just sit there and (laughs) they're for the masses to, you know, on Facebook or Instagram to enjoy, but then they kind of just sit there and they always intend to print. I find that clients always feel that that they're, they're going to go back and print, but then because like their lives are busy, they've got other things going on that they just get distracted. And finally, like they come back to it you know, six months, a year later, or maybe it's like, oh, graduation's coming up. I need to get grad announcements done. And so they hurry and stress about it and get it done quickly because usually like a last minute effort. And then they're like, okay, I'll go, I'll do prints later because they're usually overwhelmed. And then it's like six months later. And then at that point, they're like, well, maybe I won't print them. And so, but it's all of that is just subtly, it's not serving them. You know, we have this, we have access to all these professional labs that do great quality work and to, to help like finish that for them. And again, kind of like I mentioned before, I find that, you know, they don't realize like how fulfilled or how satisfied they feel until they have those print products and they're holding those images in their hand. I found that, you know, clients will only pay so much for just digital images because there's nothing tangible to hold. So having things like translating that to physical things helps up the value of images to them over, you know, just like sending them as a digital download or like a small, or you could even like a nice USB. But again, like what, it, it's it's difficult for them to see the value if there's nothing tangible to hold. At least that's why I found in my experience. But I love the way that you frame that. You know, there, and we're going to talk a little bit about the fears innate to IPS and how to deal with those here in just a second. But the way that you frame that was that IPS isn't. I mean, it isn't sim- as simple as I'm going to go try to get a bunch of money from this client. What you're actually focusing on largely is just pr- taking care of them. A and B, providing a better experience for them. Just handing them a USB drive is not an experience. And so by walking them, kind of hand-holding them through this process of selecting a few fine art prints for their home that they're going to hopefully cherish forever, and Mm -hmm. ultimately providing a much more kind of premium experience through that process, you're, you're giving them an experience which is going to reverberate, hopefully, and hopefully as well, bring additional clients into your business in the future, which you can also give a similar experience, but it's all about the experience. And I love that you're framing it that way. The, the, the anti-salesperson in me, I mean, despite the fact that I was a photographer for over a decade and now photographers edit for a decade or so, I'm still not your natural salesperson. I tend to hold back from that kind of thing. And, and I, you know, I, I kind of hope that, that somebody will, 
see my business and, and want the service mm-hmm. versus going after it proactively. That's just my tendency. Of course, I have to push beyond that. But a lot of doing life and certainly business is framing something in the right way and um, yes. or adjusting our, our belief about it. And I love the way that you have framed this idea of IPS and that it's actually providing your clients a better experience and then it's taking better care of them. So speaking of these apprehensions and fears associated with being a salesperson, um, I'd love for you to address those fears. Maybe, um, and I know that you and I were chatting about this before we started. There are a few that you've got in mind, both the fears that most photographers probably experience with regards to IPS and then how they can best address those so that hopefully some of our listeners can experience some of the success that you've had as well. Yeah, absolutely. The biggest one that I know I have felt and I've heard a lot is the fear of rejection, um, both in the inquiry and also when you're like meeting with them in the sales room, like it's, that's really nerve wracking. And that would, you know, then it would equal like no one books you, then that would equal that you fail in your business like flops. But what I have found that like, it doesn't matter at what price point range, you're going to find someone that says that you're too expensive. Like I had a friend who was like charging like $75 when she first started just to like, you know, get her foot in the door and people would still say that she's too expensive. You know, I had people when I started at 350 that said I was too expensive when, you know, all, I mean, all the way through. And so you definitely will probably feel a little bit of a dip as you transition over as you're training your clients to, you know, think in the way of products and training them to anticipate products. But you'll find when you give the products and you finish that experience for them that it kind of leaves them on a, on a high. And it, you'll notice that it will start to feed back to you as they start talking about you. And what's really great that I've got, I've gotten quite a few, you know, clients where they went to, you know, someone's house and they saw this beautiful artwork of, you know, their teenage daughter, like the, this teenager that they've known, like their, their family friends, they've known each other since like she was eight or five. And then the parents are like, oh, you should check out this album. And I can't tell you, like, I've had a lot of people comment that, you know, they look at this album and like, you've captured all the many, like the depths of this girl that I've known for years. And I want that for, you know, either myself, if it's the senior who's inquiring or mostly the people get excited about the most is honestly the parents want that experience for their daughter and they want that for themselves. They want to be able to remember her in that aspect. And that's what you're giving people with print products, with uh, giving them something tangible is you're you're highlighting that memory that you are providing for them with your art. And honestly, once you start getting those, then it's, it just reaffirms. You reframe it into that you're providing a service. You're completing a service for them that you know they do not have access to. You are the professional. You have access to you know giving them that quality product and that quality experience. And so rejection is definitely going to be part of it. And I think that's just part of any aspect of just owning a business. There will be people that want just digitals and no matter how much they, they like them, they want that control of themselves. That's not your client. That won't be the best fit for you, but there are people that you will fill a need for that. They didn't even realize they had, or they are already looking for it that you can provide for them. And so 
with her, as far as rejection goes, I found that it's, it's just an illusion, honestly, and that there's rejection in all levels. And you just have to like, just have to ease into the uncomfortableness of the unknown for it and just embrace it. And then you'll find that it's, 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 Oh, I get so excited about it. So I'm like, like stammering a little bit, but <laughs> no worries. It will, like it, it really will fuel yourself and giving you more purpose for your business as well as like just seeing the response from your clients when they get to like pick those up or they put those up in their, in their houses and everything like that. The other fear that I hear is it takes a lot of extra time. That was one that I definitely had as well. Cause you know, they, I mean, my coach recommended that I do a pre-consult with them to kind of set expectations to get an understanding of what I need to shoot for because it's going to go somewhere in their house. This is a great opportunity to also continuing to set that expectation that that is what you're thinking of. That's the end goal. That's the end product is like, okay, so where are we going to put this in your house? Is it horizontal? Is it landscape? All of that stuff. And so that does take extra time to plan but it just helps create a, a better environment for the photo shoot because then you get to interact with your clients beforehand and create a relationship. And then, you know, then you have to do the order session and that does take a little bit of time, especially for those clients that are very indecisive and they're trying to pick their favorite images. But I'm, I now I added an extra two and a half hours and that's it to, make like I, my first sale sale after was like $900, which like blew my mind. Like every single time it doesn't, every single time I literally like cry after a sale wow. <laughs> meeting because like, even it's still like the fact that people trusted me so much, like yeah. that is like, it's such an honor and that they trusted me and then invest in me that much for the experience. It, it's really, it's so humbling each time, but like for that extra two and a half hours, I made $500 or $600 more, you know, that as far as like the time compared, like it really kind of, it, it's worth the extra time to get to a, that other level. And then the last one, Oh, go for it. Oh, I was just going to say, and it not only translates to a better experience, but obviously there's a, there's a payoff financially as well. So just understanding ahead of time that you have to put that extra time in should, should be enough to alleviate the potential apprehension there about the extra time cost. Yeah, exactly. Like that extra, that extra time definitely has paid out for me financially as well as adding to the experience. It's like winning all the way around. (laughs) That's Um, for sure. And then you said there's a third fear too. What is that? Yes. And so this one is a smaller one. I feel like the other two are like the biggest ones I hear. But another one I hear about is that it's expensive to start out because, you know, for me it was expensive because I did a business coach to get me started. But also when you're having them at the order session, it's important to have physical like print copies of everything that you sell right. because it's hard for them to visual visualize what you're talking about unless they're holding it where they see it. So you like going out and, you know, testing out labs to find which one you like, and then, you know, making copies for me, I like to make two copies of each of the albums that I, I sell so that the, both the senior and the parent can hold them to at the same time. Um, and, and showing all the different sizes that you offer and all of the different finishes, like it does take a little bit upfront, 
But in my first IPS order session, I, you know, I got all of that money back and then some. So you get your money back. It's a little bit scary at first, for sure, because it seems like you have that like weighing on your credit card and you're like, is this even going to work? Because you're taking a leap of faith because it's all a new realm for you. But usually if you price yourself accordingly in that first in that first order session, you can cover it pr- pretty easily. That makes sense. And I mean, it's it's honestly a little funny to hear you talking about the, the apprehension that some may have about cost of product, because I come from a day and age when physical product was the norm. We had sample albums and, yeah. and this is, you know, large prints on the wall and clients would come over and they'd see this as an example of the work that we might provide for them. But I realized mm-hmm. that these, and that was only, well, it's been less than, than 10 years ago. Um, yeah. It was kind of a different world. Nowadays, as we've talked about, the the idea of just digital files is more the norm. And so there may be a bit of apprehension throwing a few hundred dollars here and there into an album and some larger prints. But uh, I would venture that 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 cost, the, the upfront cost, as we talked about, certainly with uh, time cost is going to translate to significant benefit on multiple levels down the road if you're willing to just put the investment in up front. I am curious, though, to go back to the first point that you made about fear of rejection here as we mm-hmm. close. There were a couple of things, a couple of notes that I made as, as you were chatting, and I'm curious about this and your perspective on this. When it comes to rejection, I mean, certainly we're, we're always going to face rejection in, in, in one form or another um, when yeah. we're doing business. That's just the that's part of the deal, uh, as unfortunate as it may be. But we can help minimize the chance of that rejection with two ideas. One would be to filter for the right client. So we have to understand, and this is something we talk a lot about on the Boca podcast, is understanding our target client or target market and then appropriately marketing to them so that the people that we're bringing in fit the the so-called mold of this particular business model. Is that something that you're doing proactively? And, and what does that look like for you? Yes, I'm actually, that's a really good clarification because I think this is really important to set that expectation when, when your clients are looking through all of the, like the contact ways that they see your, your work to set that expectation that you do a full service, which includes print products and how I have kind of set the bar for my clients is it's important to post about your products. I try and post now. I posted pretty heavily when I first started because I really wanted to make sure that there was no questions about like, this is to be expected. You get print products. Now I do it like twice a month where I highlight a product, you know, like most recently, like I do albums a lot. I really love albums. So I do highlight them the most uh, or my storyboards. Like you want to show people the products that you offer in like, you know, I'm like, oh, this is how like this person's album turned out. This is how this one, like this framed print looks in their home of like, you know, you're showing client examples or just talking about why you love certain products or highlighting, you know, I offer these in four different finishes. Like there are so many different social media posts that you could do to just educate your clients. I even have a highlight reel on my Insta stories that about, you know, clients picking up their products uh, back when I had my studio or new products that I want to highlight showing off like when the products come in. I mean, 
there's so much you can do. I, as you could probably tell, like I think about it quite often because <laughs> I'm trying to come up with new content to constantly just keep reminding clients. But that way, when people follow you for a while, they realize like, okay, like this is just something to be, it's just like a subtle thing going in the back of their mind and then posting it on your website. So I try on my details page to have like the main image show some print products on my like, you know, I try to put in print products like in different areas of details. Back before I did international work, it was on my front page. Like there was a picture of albums, you know, just again to to keep like putting that message in their mind that this is part of the process. Products are to be expected. And then when I talk about them in the intro email, when they inquire and they email me, I do a nice sum up like all of my collections have like you know, fine art wall finishes and like X, Y, and Z. And then also it's, there are a bunch of pictures of print products in my intro guide. So those are like three points of contact before they even book me that hopefully they've seen and are expecting, you know, print products to be a standard. And it's a little, it seems a bit annoying. Like I'm talking about so much and I feel a bit redundant, but we're in that they're seeing so much imagery all the time that you need to keep like reminding them over and over again, even though it's not the most fun thing to post. Like I get the least engagement from them, but it's just, I'm, it's just putting money in the bank of just educating my clients. That's, and then I love the way that you also frame that as well. But I don't think, you know, the, the reality of redundancy, and this is something that, that I've considered, especially with the podcast, because as well as we have done, I think, in producing a variety of content, there are a number of topics that become a bit repetitive. I mean, there are a lot of things that I think are important ideas that I communicate on a regular basis here in the podcast. But we also have to keep in mind that this you don't always have the same people looking at or listening to that content that we're creating. And it's better to put the content out there, in our case, proactively, or in your case, to to proactively and aggressively manage the expectations of the potential clients so they know about your brand and what that process looks like than the other way around. Because even in this day and age where we have all these wonderful, wonderful communication tools, there is still, unfortunately, a tendency to under-communicate. And when we're talking about creating the best possible experience for our clients, that's certainly not helping. So I love that you do that proactively. Just very, very briefly, though, how are you filtering effectively for clients who can afford the kind of money that you're talking about? I mean, spending potentially thousands of dollars in prints or in albums, how do you make sure that you're bringing in clients that even have the money to spend on something like that? That's a good question. So I have found that there's like a threshold for my clientele where they where I'm filtering out the shoot and burn, you know, mindset versus someone who wants something that's more of experience based. Pricing yourself on the sitting fee is actually really, really important. A higher sitting fee usually means that you're attracting clients that will show up and pay those higher numbers. Makes sense. Honestly, like when I I don't say like off the bat anticipate to spend like, you know, $2,000 because anybody who hears that, even if you're getting quoted for like a sink is like, holy moly, that is overwhelming. So it's just like tiptoeing it in and then just showing like through the experience and like, here, I'm going to quote you for something here and then addressing questions and everything like that, that kind of pushes, pushes them over to that point. And like, I could go into a whole IP, like a whole conversation about that alone because there's so much to dive into with that, but 
as a gist in the intro, it's like I have a, pr- a higher sitting fee and then I show like the intro packages. And from there, that really like filters out the mindset for, you know, which people will book me. Totally makes sense. Yeah. Well, and it's important to have those types of filters in place. You know, I actually made note as, as we were talking today, if you would be willing, I would love to have you back on the podcast and us do, we, we do a, a series here at Boca and Photographers Edit called Workflow Wednesday. And um, one of the things we definitely have not gotten into yet is this idea of IPS and to be able to break down this workflow. I mean, we've addressed some pretty important issues here with regards to IPS and the fear innate to that process with many photographers today. And I can't thank you enough for your time and being willing to share that, but there's so much more to get into. So um, <laughs> maybe maybe we can figure out another time to come back to this topic because it's it really is a, a massive, massive one. But I, I really appreciate your energy for you making the time to share with our listeners today for sharing your perspective and a little bit of what you've learned from this process. Just to kind of close this out, where can our listeners find you online? I know we mentioned your website and social media earlier. Would you mind sharing that with them again? Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me on my website, kayalajarvis.com. And then at all my all of my social media is at kayalajphoto. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Send me a DM. Say hi because I love chatting with people. <laughs> yeah, this was so much fun. Thank you again for, for doing this today. For those of you listening in, do make sure you go to Boca, B-O-K-E-H podcast.com. Check out the show notes that Haley so wonderfully puts together for all of us. It is a an incredible resource of information um, there at bocapodcast.com, the show notes to go along with each of the episodes. We'll have a number of links from today's episode as well. But thank you so much again, Kayla, for making time for Boca. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to the Boca podcast today. Will you let us know what you think by leaving a review of the podcast in iTunes or maybe in the Apple podcast app? And I'd love to hear from you personally with your thoughts about the podcast, maybe suggestions about future topics and guests for the show. My direct email is nathan at photographersedit.com. The Boca Podcast is brought to you by Photographers Edit, custom image editing for the wedding and portrait photographer. Just visit photographersedit.com.